0: The king has finally arrived on the scene, and now the excitement's over. The dust has settled, and what's going to come of it all? That question applies to the first days after the first Christmas. What's going to come of it all? And that question applies equally to the days after David killed Goliath. There are strong parallels. In both cases, we can ask, now the big event is over, what's going to come of it? We have been looking at 1 Samuel. And the last time we turned to 1 Samuel, we saw the Philistines march into Israel and send out their champion, a giant of a man. And his challenge to Israel was, choose a man and let him come down to me. Let us fight each other. And the winner takes all. Whoever's champion wins, that will be the winning side. And we saw that while the rest of Israel was dismayed and terrified, David, a shepherd boy, walked out filled with confidence in God. And he killed Goliath. David was God's chosen anointed king. And God gave him the victory. Now in the aftermath of that victory, what's going to happen? Well, what we're going to find is that God's chosen king provokes very different reactions. He is loved by many. And he's hated by some. This morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 17, towards the end of verse 17, chapter 17, verse 55, and we'll follow this through to chapter 18, verse 30. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 290, or in the large print, 455, excuse me, 445. Now, chapter 17, verse 55, is actually a little flashback. It tells us what happened just as David was going out to meet Goliath. This is what we read in chapter 17, verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him. And gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mehola. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants to speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David. But David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. This is God's word. In the first section of this passage, we find one reaction to God's king. David is recognized as the one who belongs on the throne. We already know David is the youngest or the littlest of his family. We know that his job was tending sheep. And there is no prestige in either of those things. And the opening verses here remind us David doesn't even come from a royal family. When Saul inquires, he discovers David's father is Jesse of Bethlehem. Now if you've been following through 1 Samuel, you might wonder at this point, doesn't Saul already know David? Wasn't David drafted in to play the liar for Saul, to bring some relief when Saul was troubled in his spirit? It's true, chapter 16 did tell us that. But I think in terms of time sequence, that new job for David actually happens during chapter 18. In other words, the incident with Goliath came before David became Saul's liar player. The reason Saul's mental disturbance was mentioned back in chapter 16 was to contrast him with David. David. We were told there that when David was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And at the same time, we were told, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. All that's to say, what we read at the end of chapter 17 is not a case of Saul forgetting who David is. This is Saul finding out for the first time who David is. Saul first met David when he walked into his tent and offered to take on Goliath. And now Saul wants to find out who this wonder kid is. And it's an unusual scene. Verse 57 tells us Abner brings David in still holding Goliath's head. Blood dripping on the carpet. And yet, there is no triumphalism from David. There's no comments about Saul being a coward and a pathetic excuse for a king. Now, the first words out of David's mouth are words of loyalty to Saul. In verse 58, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. David has just slain a giant. But he's not an upstart. He knows his place. Saul is the king. And David is his servant. And so what happens next is really remarkable. Look again at chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. If we look at this in terms of David and Jonathan's positions, we would expect them to be rivals. Jonathan is Saul's son, remember. He's next in line for Israel's throne. And now this shepherd boy has just arrived on the scene and saved Israel from the Philistines. We would expect Jonathan to feel threatened by David. But verse 1 says he became one in spirit with David. We might say they become kindred spirits. What is it that unites these two men? It's their trust in God. Back in chapter 14, Jonathan went against the Philistines saying, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And in chapter 17, we heard David shouting at Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will deliver you into my hands. David and Jonathan share the same love for God and the same confidence in God. And so although by all expectations they should be rivals, they actually become like brothers. And in fact, we're told Jonathan makes a covenant with David. We're not told the details of this covenant, but verse 4 may well explain it for us. We're told Jonathan gave David his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan's robe was a royal robe. In fact, his whole outfit indicated that he was next in line to the throne. His clothes signify his position. And he hands them over to David. Instead of trying to get rid of David... Jonathan takes the initiative and he steps aside for David. Officially, Jonathan is the superior one in this friendship. But he puts himself in the lesser position. What would make him do that? Somehow, Jonathan's love for God enables him to recognize God's king. And he gives way to God's king. And so this is an unequal friendship. But not in the way we would have expected. Jonathan has surrendered his own right to be king. He recognizes the greater right of David. And there's no hint of any reluctance here. Jonathan is glad to give way. And he will demonstrate that for the rest of his life. We've seen recently and over Christmas too that David is like a preview of God's ultimate anointed king, Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' surname, it's his title. It's the Greek version of Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. In his day, David was God's Messiah. And as we look at David we learn about the true Messiah. And Jonathan's response to David here is a picture of how God wants us to respond to the king. Acknowledging his position means the end of our own ambitions to be king. Jonathan lays down his kingly ambitions gladly. He's not begrudging about it. He sees David's worthiness And he wants to give David the honor he deserves. Jonathan gives up his own claim to the throne because he realizes who belongs on the throne. He looks at God's king and he is glad to say, he is the one who must rule. That's one response to God's king. But the rest of our passage shows us a different response in the rest of our passage, in the eyes of Saul, David is seen as a rival. If Jonathan looks at David and sees God's true king, Saul looks at David and sees a threat to his own rule. And apparently it all starts after the defeat of Goliath. Look at verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine... The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. That should probably be translated, Saul kept a jealous eye or an envious eye on David. There is a great difference in the way Saul and Jonathan react to David. Jonathan's first concern was God's honor. And because of that, He was happy to give way to God's king. But Saul's first concern is his own honor. And so he sees David as a rival and a threat. And the worst part of it is, this is a celebration of a great victory for Israel. God's enemies have been defeated. But Saul is very angry. And it says literally, it was evil in his eyes. Why? Simply because David got more praise in the celebration songs. That's what envy and jealousy are like. They cause us to see good things as bad because we don't get the praise for them, they cause us to see blessings as evil. If someone else gets more of a fanfare than us. And maybe we think we're above this, but we're not. Envy is like a cancer, it's destructive. And none of us is immune to it. We have to be watching out for it, we daren't let it take root in our hearts. How many churches have been ruined by envy and jealousy? How much damage has been done to the witness of churches? Because church members see each other as rivals, rivals who are fighting for praise and position. Now, of course, it will almost never be put in those terms. No one's going to admit their behavior is fueled by envy. But I would suggest that very often, not always, but very often when it seems churches are splitting over some theological issue or over the direction the church is going in, what's really fueling the fire are envy and jealousy. Somebody wants the praise that someone else is getting. And so brothers and sisters begin to see each other as rivals rather than fellow servants of God. So let's ask God to guard us from this danger. Let's ask him to override our concern for personal honor and praise. Let's ask him to replace that with concern for his honor and praise. Let's pray the witness of this church is never harmed Because of envy and jealousy among us. And if we know deep down that we're guilty of this, if we know there are traces of this in our hearts, let's repent of it and ask God to deliver us from it. In Saul's case, he's desperately trying to hold on to his throne. That is Saul's all consuming passion. The good of God's kingdom has faded from Saul's mind. So when he hears David receiving praise, he says to himself in verse 9, What more can he get but the kingdom? Saul sees the kingdom as his, not God's. It's not God's to give to who God chooses. No, Saul sees it as his own to hold on to for dear life. And it seems to be around this time that Saul begins to be afflicted with an evil spirit from God. We heard about this back in chapter 16. And I said then, the word translated evil often means harmful. So it's likely we're being told not that God sent a demon on Saul but that he sent an angel to bring judgment on Saul. That judgment seems to come in the form of severe depression and emotional disturbance. Because of Saul's rebellion against God, God has removed his enabling power and sent his disturbing power. And although we heard about this in chapter 16, it seems to have begun in this context of Saul's envy and jealousy towards David. That's what's fueling this madness that comes over Saul. Look at verse 10. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. The word prophesying can simply mean raving. We're not being told here that Saul is delivering a message from God. That's what the word often means. But in this context, it means Saul is raging and ranting, maybe foaming at the mouth. And notice what David is doing he's trying to calm Saul down to give him some relief, some peace. But of course, it's partly envy of David that's driving Saul mad. So the source of Saul's relief actually becomes the focus of his anger. Twice he tries and fails to nail David to the wall with his spear. One thing that tells us is that Saul's a terrible shot. In the chapters to come, he will throw his spear plenty more times. But he never succeeds in hitting anyone. And yet even more significant is the fact that David hung around to have the spear thrown at him twice. To the end of Saul's life, David will show amazing loyalty to his king. Remember the position that David's in. Samuel has anointed him. David knows he's going to be king. He knows God is with him. And it's pretty obvious David has the skill to get the better of Saul. Wouldn't you think he would seize the opportunity to take the throne? When Saul attacks him, wouldn't he be justified in fighting back? Killing Saul and taking what God has promised him? But David's loyalty to Saul never wavers. He knows God put this man on the throne. And David will leave it to God to take him off the throne. This is God's show, it's God's plan. And David is not going to try and speed things up. God will put David on the throne in God's time. Saul is eaten up by his personal ambition. But David only shows ambition for God's honor. As far as David's concerned, the throne can wait. He'll get on with the work God has set in front of him. And that happens to be playing the lyre for this angry king. And David will do it, even if it means dodging the odd spear while he's doing it. But in fact, Saul is not able to bear David's presence. We're told that he's afraid of David, so he sends him away to fight battles. But that only makes things worse, because David is great at fighting battles. Verse 14 tells us that in everything he did, he had great success, because the Lord was with him. We keep hearing that about David. We're also told all Israel and Judah loved David. But Saul keeps trying to get rid of him. He offers him Merab, his oldest daughter, as a wife. And, says Saul, the only condition, David, is that you fight lots more battles. Saul figures the more times I can put David in harm's way, the more chance there is he'll get killed. In fact, he says to himself in verse 17... I'll not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Again, think about Saul's perspective here. He no longer sees the Philistines as enemies. They're just a means to get rid of Israel's best soldier. Saul's become so twisted by his envy, he wants the Philistines to win. There is no concern for God's kingdom. Saul's only concern is for his own position. It's hard to tell exactly what happens with Merab. It could be that David refused the offer. Maybe because he was already interested in Saul's younger daughter, Michael. Or it could be Saul just broke his word to David. David. In any case, Merab marries someone else. But Saul tries the same approach again. This time, instead of trying to set David up with one of his daughters, he finds out that Michael is in love with David. And from David's reaction a bit later on, we can assume that he's keen on her too. Anyway, we're told Saul is pleased when he finds out about this. Verse 21 says... I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Again, Saul is not concerned for Israel. He's not concerned for the happiness of his daughter either. No, the situation pleases him because he thinks Michael can be a snare to David. How might she be a snare? Well, we'll find out in later chapters that she's into idol worship. Maybe that's how Saul hopes she'll be a snare to David by leading him away from the Lord. But it may just be Saul sees another chance to send David off on dangerous missions. In fact, that's what he does. At this time, when a daughter was getting married, the father would set what was called a bride price. The original intention was to protect the honor of the girl. The message was, you can't have my daughter for free. She's precious. You need to show how much you treasure her. That was the idea. But when David says he's too poor to afford the bride price for a king's daughter, Saul sees an opportunity. Don't worry, David. All I want is 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, I realize some of you had breakfast not too long ago. And I know that you're all looking forward to lunch. So this is not something you want me to dwell on. But we have to ask, what is this about? Well, in the world of this time, it was standard practice to collect proof of how many of your enemies had died in battle. Today, the winner might collect dog tags or maybe epaulets from dead enemies. In the ancient world, it was hands or heads or foreskins. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all did it. And since the Philistines were a nation that didn't practice circumcision, Saul asked for foreskins to prove David has done what was asked of him. I suppose they were easier to carry than heads. Yes, it's gruesome. It is. It is. But has there ever been a time when war was not gruesome? In any case, David has been asked for this particular bride price because Saul is hoping David will get killed in the process. At the end of verse 25, we're told, Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines but his plan backfires. Verse 26 tells us, when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. Do you see how backwards this is? The Lord is with David. Saul's daughter loves David. And yet Saul treats him as an enemy. If only Saul would look up, away from himself, away from his own greedy ambition, then he would love David too. But Saul is only concerned with his own honor and his own kingdom, and so he can only see David as a rival. Earlier, we saw Jonathan's reaction to David. When he recognized David was God's anointed one, he was glad to give way. Glad for God's king to have preeminence. But now we've seen a very different reaction from Saul. Jonathan and Saul show us how people always respond to God's king. This is how people respond to King Jesus. Jesus. John the Baptist was a big man in Israel in his day. But when he realized who Jesus was, John said, he must become greater. I must become less. Many people share Jonathan and John's reaction. They give way to the king. They live to see the king given his rightful place in their lives and in this world. But there are many who react like Saul. And it's just too easy for us to think of people outside the church. Of course, they don't give way to Jesus. Of course, they don't. But what about us? How many of us live quietly angry lives because we see Jesus as a rival? Now, maybe we'd all say, no, no, not us. But the reality is this. If Jesus is going to have his rightful place, then we have to give way. We have to become less. We have to prize our fingers off that crown. We have to hand over the kingly robes. We have to get off the throne. And so it is very easy to say Jesus is king. It's easy to say Jesus is my king. But it's a whole different matter to joyfully make way for him. To say not my will but yours be done. Not my name, but yours be glorified. If that's truly going to happen, some of our ambitions have to die. And so even as Christians, we can live in fear of Jesus. Fear that he'll take something away from us. Fear that he's going to receive something that we actually want for ourselves. Fear that he isn't going to cater to our desires. Three times our passage told us Saul was afraid of David. He was afraid because David was a threat to the things that Saul treasured most. Saul wanted to be king himself. And so he could only see David as a rival. And if you and I won't hand over the crown, then we will never be at peace. We'll go through life as discontented Christians. We'll feel we're never quite getting what we deserve. And so the question is, how do you see God's kingdom? Do you see him as the one who truly belongs on the throne? Or do you see him actually as a rival to your throne? Let's ask God to make us like Jonathan. Let's pray that our true joy will come from seeing God's King honored and elevated. That we will be happy to become less so that he can become greater. So he can receive the praise that's due to him. We're going to praise him now as we sing together. Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head.